Hey guys, welcome back. It is Jason, your host. Whatsoever's true. No walk-up music. No big robe. No anything like that. Just uh, like the Mike Tyson walk into the ring. We're going to go right in and get into some hard-hitting, hard-hitting theology. What's going on with the world? And the, today's subject is going to be a, well, uh, something that, that is so important for evangelicals to understand. So important for anyone who cares about the loss that I know it might sound like, oh, well, this is somewhat of an academic egghead kind of apologist subject, but it's not. It's all about being able to reach people where they're at in a way that's going to utterly alter their world in a, in a great way by bringing them the truth about Jesus Christ and his lordship. So you must bring Christianity into politics, all right? You must do that. And every day... In this country, you have a chance to do that. You have every day a chance to confront unbelief at the root of it with the idolatry of the state. Now, imagine what would happen if a pastor on his way to the pulpit one Sunday morning tripped and fell. And on his way down, it went from being kind of amusing to being like a catastrophic blowout because he starts cussing and swearing and screaming and even taking the name of the Lord in vain. We'd go quickly from giggles to a gas. The experience would be terrible, and obviously the, the pastor would, would have to answer for such a, such a scene, right? Well, that happens, and that's a, that's a small thing, because that's a, that's a momentary, that's a one-and-done issue. Right? I mean, a man has a bad temper. He, you know, he, a trucker yells at traffic because he's stuck in traffic. That is hardly a... Uh, like a consistent sin in terms of his theological position and commitment to the Lord. And we'd be talking about a weakness rather than a committed position. Now, I'm not saying he should just let that go and let that slide. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying here is that when Christians are talking to unbelievers, and even Christians themselves who are ignorant of this, and after this podcast, you won't be ignorant, they're told you can't bring Christianity into politics. Right? Well, the problem of the aforementioned pastor slipping, tripping, falling, and swearing and cussing is a small and dark moon of sin compared to the idolatrous myth of neutrality of which we send people out every day with the false notion that Jesus Christ is Lord on Sunday. He's Lord of our hearts, but he's not Lord of, say, you know, Washington. What that's doing is it's saying there is another set of laws, a moral set of laws that apply to everybody. <clears throat> but not Jesus. And Jesus Christ has to bend his knee to that too. Do you see where we're going with this? It is a grave sin because it is agreeing with the non-believing world with a humanistic definition of reality. So I know this is a big one, so let's, let's start breaking it down. The secular view of church and state is that there is no God, that the state is over God, that natural law is over God's law. Right? So, I mean, all is just matter in motion. That's it. There is no highest authority on earth except for man and his institutions. And you can play with this God thing if you want to, but you can't bring it in a public sphere. The classical Christian view, on the other hand, which is ours, and hopefully yours too, is that God has established all authorities, and this is Romans 13, 1, including the state. Each authority, the family, the church, the state, has a sphere. Let's say going to work, your boss has a sphere of 
authority. So does a pastor. Let's say, for example, a pastors and elders can't bind one's conscience in any way that the Bible doesn't command. If they do that, they're overstepping their bounds. Now, these spheres all enter or are all in God's reality, and they all will at some places overlap. But when one tries to usurp the rightful derivative authority God has given to that that particular authority and say let's say the family let's say the church decides to tell the parents how to how to how to parent then you're going to have some chaos and tyranny if the state does it well it clearly have tyranny so that's the idea of the authorities for there are no authorities except from God and all of those authorities have been established by him every authority has its definition and its limitation from God if an authority is its own limitation and has its, and gets to define its own power, then that authority must be God. That is why not bringing Christianity into politics is a horrific problem. So one way to address this to people is show them the insanity of it. Show them the arbitrary nature of their unbelief. Show them that the principle that they're saying, which they think sounds right. Remember, the devil comes in as an angel of light. He says, well, you can't bring Christianity into politics because not everybody's a Christian and that wouldn't be fair. That sounds fair, right? But the principle there in play is called unanimity. Unless everyone agrees, it can't count. Well, you don't agree with that. You're not an atheist, right? And for the same matter, neither is a Muslim or a Buddhist or whatever. So the principle of unanimity can't be applied consistently. It can't even be applied there. Someone has to concede. That's the issue with authority. All right? So clearly a Christian is horrifically remiss in going forth into political debates and accepting the terms of debate that Jesus Christ isn't Lord. Next, and this is proceeding from the arbitrary nature of the, of the unanimity fallacy, how did we arrive at this principle in the first place? See, the thing to know about non-Christian thought, insofar as moral ethical issues are concerned, is that without the immutable and righteous God at the bottom of everything, is that nothing makes sense. Everything's arbitrary. Why can't the Christian doctrines be admitted to the political field? Right? I mean, they're just saying you can't do it. Right? They start with the whole, oh, everybody knows. Well, I don't know. <laughs> you can't bring religion into politics. Right? Everybody knows that. Well, I don't know that. Maybe somebody else doesn't know that. How does everybody know that? What's the source of it? And whether everybody knows something or not doesn't necessarily mean it's true. So the Christian has been duped into thinking he can't bring the Bible into politics, that it's somehow unfair and biased. And stupidly, foolishly, the Christian doesn't bother to inquire as to, well, what book did we get that from? What is the authority here? That's what the Christian should always say. The principle of Romans 4.3, what does the scripture say? The Christians cannot be deceived into believing that secular man is neutral. He's not neutral. He's starting from a position of authority. There is an ultimate authority. Everybody has one. Get the non-Christian to tell you what his authority is. Ask him to put his flag down. Ask him for consistency. It's a wonderful evangelical tool. Which brings us to this. All moral reasoning, I mean questions of right and wrong, which is what politics are really, must rest upon an ultimate authority. In this way, all moral disagreements are disputes about ultimate authority. Incidentally, this is why political arguments are so frustrating. 
people insist upon debating midstream without reference to ultimate standards, and that's like debating who has who was the greatest football team of all time, but arbitrarily omitting the Super Bowl champions. In this way, the insistence that Christians not bring the Bible when discussing politics is absolutely a non-starter for Christians. A Christian is a Christian because he or she joyously is under the authority of God's word. To set that aside, to engage in a debate over right and wrong, is to demand that a Christian not be a Christian. Right? It's like a, it's like a fish demanding that it's a bird. Can we say that a man is a good husband if every day when he goes to work he takes off his wedding ring and flirts with women at the office? The secular principle of government is that the state is independent of God, that God has no authority there, and he must check his authority at the door if he's going to come in and talk to the civil magistrate. No Christian should ever accept that principle. Third, and this is very vexing, and probably the whole heart of the matter here, if you will, is the unargued accusation that the secular state must, ready, protect unbelieving people from God. Get that? It's to say that God's will is evil towards those who aren't Christian, and these individuals must be protected from him. That's a horrific thought, guys. And to think that Christians accept this ghastly slander against the goodness of the Lord that they profess to love and follow. One can imagine what a man would say if a neighbor told him that his wife was a vile whore. Surely he'd have an answer to that, right? Surely he wouldn't say, yeah, she does have her moments. But this is, in effect, what the Christian says of God when he or she concedes to the atheistic notion of separation of church and state. The same God that sends his sunshine and blessings aplenty upon the just and unjust also provides security for all too. He does this by the restraining of sin through the establishment of both family and civil authorities. Be sure the Bible separates the family, church, and state. To the family, God gives a blessing of marriage and raising children in the home and, and you know, taking them to church, bringing them, up, bringing them up in the Word. To the church, God gives the gospel to make men right with God through faith in Christ, and this can't be done by force, only by preaching and by teaching and by love and by discipleship, by ministry, by service. To the state, God hands his sword of wrath to punish interpersonal evil, crime. Keeping these God-given authorities separate allows us to live in peace. Well, relative peace in a sinful world until Christ comes back. When one sphere of authority usurps another or doesn't exercise, let's say in the case of Pilate, Pilate washed his hands to the whole thing. He didn't execute his authority as he should have in protecting people from sin and evil, and in this case, crime. Christ was unjustly arrested, unjustly persecuted, unjustly tried, and then again, unjustly executed. Pilate was not as guilty as the Jews who handed him over. Jesus said so himself. But he still was guilty because he didn't uphold the law. It's true that the scripture doesn't devote a lot of space to the civil master's in the New Testament, but this doesn't mean what people think it means. What it means is that in the economy of God's order, his righteous and life-giving rules, church and family are preeminent. Just look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3. What's before the state? The family. The family structure, that is, 
godly parents who raise their children in Christ and provide for them both spiritually and materially is given far more space in scripture because the Bible isn't diluted like man's mind is. We're children of our parents, not the state. And children are a gift from God, not the state. Secular America, on the other hand, assaults the integrity of the family through perverse sexual ethics. They teach our children to explore their sexuality outside of the bonds of marriage. And then, in the wake of the catastrophic fallout of follows homes, divorce, betrayal, adultery, shame, neglect, aloneness, the state promises to provide. Indeed, what in God's economy is a role of a family and a church, the state assumes to itself. The vast majority of current socialistic public expenditures used to be done by families and the church. Not that the secular schools want you to know that. So this is why the atheist wants us to leave Christianity out of politics. The atheistic state simply doesn't want the competition. It simply wants to go on with the ruse that the state is both the church, the vessel through which men's hearts will be changed, and the family, which is welfare schemes, health care, college loans, and all of that. And this is why in the book of Revelation, we've got to understand what we mean by the beast. The beast is a tyrannical state. This, a tyrannical state has been the greatest persecutor of the church and Christians throughout history. It will allow you, the beast, to worship Jesus in private so long as your ultimate commitment is to the state. In all, you mustn't challenge the state's ethical and epistemological authority. Thus, we must see that the demand that we reason about politics without the Bible is the demand to worship the state, slash beast, if you will, because it means we must renounce scripture as the final authority over the affairs of life and instead concede that it's Caesar. We'll close with this. Remember the early Christians weren't executed because they were Christians. Let's remember that. Pagan Rome didn't care what God you worship so long as you ultimately admitted that Caesar was Lord. He was above all. All Christians had to do to not get persecuted and not get killed was say, Caesar, curios, Caesar is Lord. They could be tolerated as long as they did that and they could avoid being thrown to the lions thrown out of work not being able to join the guild and so on and so on they could keep worshiping Christ they could keep going to church that's all they had to do but they wouldn't do it because they knew that Jesus is curious Jesus is Lord see when you say Jesus is Lord you're saying that he's above Caesar that he's above Washington that he's above Vladimir Putin that he's above whatever else whatever other authority you're gonna find that is why Herod tried to kill all the babies under two years old he knew that a king had been born so just like that remember Christ is Lord not the state refuse therefore to abandon him when asked about politics or anything else for that matter but especially this refuse to abandon him when asked about right and wrong or good and evil Refuse to abandon him when people say, well, you can't bring the Bible into that. Don't submit to the horrible evil of the myth of neutrality. Remember, the atheists aren't neutral in their ultimate allegiance, and neither should we be. We are Christ. The demand that we keep Christ out of the public square is a demand that we submit to humanism. It's a modern demand to say, Caesar, Curios. No. 
bend the knee only to Christ, refuse to be conformed to the principle of sin and the myth of neutrality. Jesus is Lord. Jesus Kyrios. Jesus is Lord. So, how is this helpful for apologetics? How is this helpful for evangel uh, evangelism? Because no matter what somebody says, they're going to admit at some point an evaluation of reality based on an ultimate standard. They simply must. Bring the scripture, scripture to them, bring the principles of scripture to them, and show them that their heart is devoted to a standard and show them how arbitrary that standard is and how they can't live by that standard and that standard makes no sense. And, show, and then show them Christ. Show them the mercy they have in Christ and, and, and ask them to repent. That's Christianity. See, the myth of neutrality is that we should be going out we shouldn't be making unbelievers uncomfortable. And we make unbelievers uncomfortable by simply living by the standard that, well, Jesus is Lord. So again, the last thing in the world we want to do is try to keep Christianity out of politics. If we have any compassion for people, we know that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are good, right? That they're, uh, moreover, by them is your servant warned. We learn what not to do. We learn the evils of covetousness and stealing and theft and uh, you know socialistic schemes and slavery and everything else that goes has gone on that governments have done under the ruse, under the guise of legal government. Jesus is Lord. The principles of the Lord are true and righteous and good, making wise is simple. That's us. We're simple. We cannot think about right and wrong and reality and ethics without reference to God. If we are, what are we making reference to? Ask them. Ask them. This is a great opportunity. So ask them. So I do hope this helped in Jesus' name. I do hope it was edifying. And I do hope it grows your faith to a new level so you just keep looking at the world and going, man, what does the scripture say? And the next time somebody asks you, what, does you, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think about that? What do you think about this? You go, well, what principle of scripture speaks to this issue? That is the renewed mind. That is the mind given to Christ. And if we do that, we honor the Lord. We honor the Lord when we go, you know what, I don't know. I don't know what's the right thing to do. I don't know what is right for all of these people. Think about Solomon asking the Lord for wisdom. The humility, I don't know how to take care of all of these people. Don't you wish that modern man would do the same? You see, it's, it's, it, it's easy to go, oh, I want wisdom, but then not really seek the will of the Lord in everything. The civil mastership is the Lord's. It doesn't get to define itself. Nothing gets to define itself or else God is in God. Now, once we get that down, and once we fix it in our minds, and once we keep it there, we will see the world in ways that are amazing, I promise you. Never, ever will you wait on the Lord. Never, ever will you submit to the Lord and be disappointed. I promise. May God's name be praised. And I hope this message is edifying. And I hope he blesses it and blesses you as well. Thanks for listening.